Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. And a good morning to you, and welcome to uh, the final days of July 2018. It's the 30th. Uh, wow. <laughs> We're going to be complaining about the cold pretty soon. Jeez. Anyway, how you doing? Yeah? Me too. Whatever you said, I'm agreeing with it. Uh, I'm loath, as I often am on a Monday, to jump right in. I was looking at some of the stuff I have here, and it's all, as usual, pretty depressing. Although, some of it's just silly. We could start silly, see where we end up. Um, you know, this weather, uh, this we're not getting it. God, I, we seem to be very lucky, given the uh, ex truly extreme weather that's occurring uh, in so many places in the world, um, and you know, between the wildfires, I mean, there was even a fire in Ar the Arctic. Did I hear that right? <laughs> I mean, just crazy stuff, yeah. And um, the extreme uh, record-breaking heat in uh, in England. And uh, in Japan, I, you know, the English are not, you know, the, the, the sort of the cartoon image of England is based on some fact. I mean, the sun doesn't shine there all that much, and it rains a lot. It's overcast a lot. And so when Brits want to get rid of their pasty white skin and get a little bit of a tan, they have to leave the country. I mean, they, they go south. And uh, so when the sun started coming out a lot in the, this month, they went nuts. They thought, wow, look at that. And they don't know from sunblock. They don't know from any. Anyway, emergency rooms actually started seeing cases of, you know, just burnt Brits. I'm not kidding you, burnt Brits coming in. <laughs> Unable to touch themselves. I because they were so unused to thinking that just walking down the street doing their average ordinary activities that they had to somehow act like they were on a beach. <laughs> so there's that, but there's also the fact that it doesn't get all that hot in, uh, in Great Britain uh, until now. And so readings in the 90s are just unheard of. And because readings in the 90s are unheard of, and because so much sun is unheard of, the average Brit does not have air conditioning. And in fact, their homes have always been built to keep heat in. <laughs> God. So uh, they're suffering. I mean, they really are suffering uh, now, and uh, it is sort of a—it's a health emergency. On top of it, in London, not only do you have this extreme heat with no AC, but you also have the usual London smog uh, exacerbated, and uh, the air is not good to breathe. So you got—you really got—I mean, hospitals there are are 
really seeing a public health emergency as a result of the um, of the heat. The the London subway, one of the main uh, the central line, which is one of the main lines in London, it's not air conditioned. No one had a problem with that before because it just didn't seem necessary. It's not air conditioned. And I will just read this reporter's account of going down into the tubes and watching people come out of the trains. Here is one, is two sentences. When the train doors opened at one stop, disoriented people spilled out drenched in sweat. One woman poured a bottle of water over her head and another man ripped off his shirt as he clambered up the stairs to escape the crowds. So, uh, I'm just saying. No complaints about the weather, okay? We're, we're, doing, we're doing well. We've got London's weather uh, this week. And they would like it back at this point. I spend uh, quite a bit of time on Sundays reading the uh, New York Times. And uh, of all the things I read in the New York Times uh, yesterday, I thought the most informative article was uh, was a rather little tiny small one in the in the magazine. And it is simply titled, How to Have Sex in a Canoe. Uh, Amy, just looking at you, that's one, right? How to Have Sex in a Canoe. Now, what the hell this is doing in the New York Times, I don't know. But it's uh, under a little section they have in the magazine called Tip. And so they have little tips. And I don't know if any of you have, I have not ever had sex in a canoe, I must say. But apparently it's potentially uh, dangerous uh, for a lot of reasons. And uh, the, the article tells you that the experts in canoe sex happen to be the Canadians. Indeed. Uh, in a country with more than 60% of the world's lakes, did you know that? I guess some of that spilled into Minnesota, Minnesota, you know, from Canada. So there's all that glacier activity. That's got the, I took one geology class. All that glacier activity in the Ice Age created as it rolled back all of these gazillions of lakes. And so who knew? Canada has 60% of the world's lakes. Wow. So anyway, they, they do a lot of, you know, not they freeze over and they play hockey on them, and, but when they're not frozen, they apparently canoe around them a lot. So um, I don't know if this is true, but it says here that the ability to copulate while floating in a small boat has become a point of uh, Canadian national pride. <clears throat> well, I'm, go for it. So do you want to hear how they, I mean, they li literally, step by step, tell you how to have sex in a canoe. I'm just, uh, first of all, no, 
I think they're just talking mostly about standard sex, you know, because you don't want to get too crazy because you'll flip over, seriously. Uh, first, it says you have to make room. <coughs> you are to stow your paddles. <coughs> Handle ends down. Behind the stern seat. Okay. You taking notes? Okay. Take out the removable center thwart. I didn't know there was such a thing as a thwart. But you're supposed to take it out if there's a thwart there. Apparently there isn't always. And it says you want to take it out because if there is a thwart, you don't want to get stuck under it in the event the canoe flips. Okay, so that's just a safety thing. Um, oh, my God, there's actually a museum um, in, in Canada, the Canoe Museum. And uh, they have in the museum an old canoe uh, that is called a girly, a girling canoe. And it features a detachable thwart and a record player. Dear God. Well, so no, so I guess they really, I mean, Canadians really are into sex and canoes. I, I don't, anyway, so it says... <clears throat> Maintaining balance is extremely important. You have to relax your body and let your hips roll with the canoe. And just because you don't want to embarrass yourselves, be mindful, it says here, that sound carries quite a distance over water. <clears throat> and so you might want to keep it down. Uh, a little bit, even though you'll feel very isolated. Others might hear your lovemaking and think you're in trouble and come to rescue you. Apparently this has happened. Also, keep at least some body part visible <laughs> over, uh, you know, to anyone happening by. Uh, above the gunwale, there's thwarts and there's gunwales, but you want to see at least a leg, an arm, something, because other boaters on the lake seeing an empty, what appears to be an empty canoe, might come paddling over and uh, raise an alarm that something amiss has happened. Okay? And uh, finally... You may decide that you want to remove your life jacket, <laughs> but only do so if you're really a good swimmer. And um, you might want to consider not totally disrobing, including not your life jacket, because always remember that black flies and mosquitoes are rampant on Canadian lakes and especially most active around twilight. Okay? So there you have it. How to have sex in a canoe. It could well be that that is the most important piece of information that you will receive on this program today. <clears throat>
little town in Pennsylvania got some uh, a lot of ink in uh, the Washington Post over the weekend. It's not the kind of ink you want, but you ever heard of this place, Ulysses? Ulysses, PA, Potter County. You ever hear of Potter County? It's one of those big square-looking counties in the middle of the state, which helps give Pennsylvania that oft-repeated uh, moniker of Pittsburgh and Philadelphia with Alabama in between. Ulysses PA, population 600, 600 and some, 650. Nice even number. Um, <clears throat> just to set the, well, well, what the hell. If you drive into Ulysses, and it's, it's sort of middle of the state north, so northern central, north central, Pennsylvania. Um, if you're driving in uh, from uh, the north, you will be greeted by um, a house with swastikas on it, German eagles, uh, the stars and stripes, as, as well as um, all kinds of other Nazi kind of paraphernalia. And it is, in fact, a home that is dedicated to Adolf Hitler. Um, the reality is, is that this little town, Ulysses, Pennsylvania, is on the map of people who take seriously watching neo-Nazis and where they are, what they're up to. So uh, an organization like the Southern Poverty Law Center very much knows Ulysses PA and in fact knows the guy who lives in the house with the swastikas flying. Uh, his name is Daniel Burnside. And uh, he was born in Ulysses. Daniel Burnside was raised in Ulysses by his grandfather, who was a World War II veteran. And get this. He was a World War II veteran of the U.S. military who was a Nazi sympathizer. You know what? It never really occurred to me that I bet he wasn't alone. So that you had Americans fighting in World War II who actually thought the Nazis were onto something. And his grandfather was one of them. He fought in Europe. His job, I suppose, was to kill Nazis. It screwed up his head. So he came back to the States, raised his despicable grandson, apparently, who he made into a Nazi, and drank himself to death uh, because, as his grandson said, the war so screwed him up, having to kill these fine Nazis, uh, that he came back to the States and drank. Now, it turns out that this little town is sort of the epicenter of neo-Nazism. Uh, about 10 years ago, 
Ulysses, Pennsylvania, population 650, hosted the World Aryan Congress. And that was a gathering of neo-Nazi skinheads, Klansmen, all your finest people. Um, I mean, one thing it tells you, the fact that they don't come to Pittsburgh and rent out the convention center tells you that they aren't a huge, huge group. But in this era of you-know-who and in... Um, I forgot. Did the lights flash like strobe? I was afraid. I'm sorry. Took my thought away. Start worrying about it. Okay. <clears throat> I forgot what I was saying. Did you know about this? Listen to this. This year. This is the same crowd. This year, after a sting operation, the feds arrested and charged six members of this Aryan Congress strike force cell with weapons offenses and all kinds of other things. But what the sting was is they said that these guys were plotting a suicide attack at an anti-racism protest. This article does not say where they were intending to do this, but listen to who was going. They had a suicide bomber, willing and ready. And you know who it was? Some hateful, old, geriatric, racist jerk in a wheelchair who required an oxygen tank. And he said, since I'm terminally ill, I'd be glad to go out in a blaze of glory and, in fact, hide the bomb in my oxygen tank as I wheel up to the rally, the anti-racism rally. And I'll take them out when I take myself. That was the, that was the plan. Ulysses P.A., ladies and gentlemen, this is such right-wing country. It has not voted Potter County. The entire county has not voted Democrat since 1880. <laughs> Trump got 80% of the vote. God, I pity those 20% that live there. God, can you imagine? Anyway, this Burnside, uh, the guy in the Hitler house, um, is the uh, like head of uh, the uh, what's called the National Socialist Movement, which of course makes people like Democratic Socialists go crazy that the Nazis use the term socialist and their kind of socialism, their idea is slightly different than, for instance, the Democratic Socialists of America. But the Washington Post sent a reporter up, and he walked around town with uh, Burnside, who was wearing a, his favorite Adolf Hitler T-shirt. And he's walking around town, and Burnside's interacting with uh, you know other residents. And the Post reporter says nobody took exception at all with his attire. <laughs> In fact, the head of the city council says that it shows that the town is a town of great tolerance and generous spirit, uh, that we accept everybody and, in fact, think Burnside's a wonderful guy. Burnside, by the way, is very happy Trump is in the White House 
because he says his agenda and our agenda overlap, but he doesn't like Trump for one reason, and I'll give you the quote. We're anti-Semites, and something's off about Trump with the Jews. That said, we're strategically aligned, and when Trump says something that aligns with us, close the borders, build the wall, look after your own, that's good. So something's wrong with Trump about the Jews. No, what Burnside is too stupid to realize is that the reason you see Jews around Trump, and if you, if you in fact look at the Jews he surrounds himself with, they indicate that Trump is too an anti-Semite. He is the anti-Semite, the kind of anti-Semite who thinks that those Jews, they're really good with money. Man, they know how to get money. That's an anti-Semitic concept, by the way, folks. But Trump is on record as saying he only wants Jews handling his money. He said it out loud to a whole group of Jews when he was running. So he has a Jewish accountant, his CFO is a Jew, he had Mnuchin, a Jew at Treasury. Uh, he had a Cohen, right, at, uh, who left. He couldn't take the racism and anti-Semitism, I suspect. So anyway, um, I cannot imagine being, um, let's say, like a black person who lives in this town, and yet there was one. I'm looking at a picture of a beautiful young black woman who is married to a white guy and they own a restaurant and that was his hometown the white guy so he must have been one of the 20 percent who didn't vote for trump and he recently packed up and got the hell out of potter county because he felt his life was in danger He and his beautiful wife now live in, uh, in Maryland. Anyway, the Southern Poverty Law Center will tell you that Pennsylvania is uh, a hotbed of racial hate groups and always has been. I remember when I first came here and I found that out, I was stunned. But, oh, yeah. <clears throat> and it's all, there's a lot of it right around here, too. The uh, Southern Poverty Law Center said there's 36 racial hate groups in Pennsylvania, and guys, that beats Alabama, uh, that beats Arkansas, uh, that beats uh, Kansas. Th this Pennsylvania is well known among white racists and nationalists and Nazi sympathizers and KKK types um, as being uh, a really good place. We got a real rich history, it says. Isn't that wonderful? <clears throat> and the right kind of conditions to uh, thrive. Someone from the Southern Poverty Law Center says, yeah, Pennsylvania, it's as significant as many, many areas in the South that people usually associate uh, with white supremacy. So uh, there you have it. Oh, and just one other little item I learned from this, and this is freaky, brings the Russians in. Um, the interracial couple with the restaurant, 
they ended up getting the hell out of town when their photograph, a photograph of the two of them, was circulated on a social media site that racists love. And guess who runs that social media site? Russia. The media site is called VK. It's a Russian-run social media site and the kind of site where <clears throat> people on it can post death threats against nice young couples like this one in, used to be in Ulysses, PA, Potter County. That's one of those things, you know, you, okay, so I read that in the Washington Post, and <clears throat> very depressing. Unbelievable. I'm losing my voice, aren't I? It sounds awful, and I'm sorry about it. I, I can't help it. It's the only one I got today. I don't know why it is like that. <coughs> I don't know. Um, let's do something a little lighter. You know, I was a um, I was a legal secretary uh, as a newlywed <coughs> back in the 70s. Um, I had uh, Jesus voice. Hang on, maybe this will help, but I doubt it. Me 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 me. Uh, so <laughs> it help. Um, in between dropping out of college and running off to New York to study theater and then getting married and moving to a pig farm. Um, I, in Wisconsin, I, um, my husband was in law school. We were living off a uh, Ralston Purina company. <laughs> we were, he had a grant uh, from the Danforth Foundation, the Danforths uh, being the owners of Ralston Purina, and they gave grants to promising young academics. And my husband had one of those, and that was our income, except for um, whatever I brought in, <coughs> which wasn't much, as a secretary. Um, and I was a lousy secretary. I mean, I didn't know how to be a secretary. The only thing I knew was I was a pretty good typist. But one of the things about being a typist in those days, in the earlier days, was if you made a mistake. Do you remember carbon paper, for God's sakes? I mean, you are you old enough to, really, if you wanted to write, type something and make three copies, well, you, you typed, you put carbon paper, you had another piece of paper, carbon paper, another piece of paper, and you put all that in, and then you type. One mistake, one mistake went through all the copies, and how did you get rid of it? So there was no room for error. I mean, it was a real bitch. You had to be a hell of a typist. Now, when I came in 
they also went to these IBM Selectric typewriters. They were like magic. They were magic. You could like backtrack and correct. That had never been the case. But I bring up the horrors of secretarial work prior to IBM Selectrics and other things because I read this um, little bit of a bio about an amazing secretary named Betty Nesmith Graham. She was a single mom raising a little boy on her own. She was making, what, here it's, she was making $2,800 a year as a secretary. And uh, she worked for a bank in Texas. <clears throat> and when she made a mistake, it would just be like, oh, damn. I mean, this was like in the, when, like the 50s, early 50s. And she also, <clears throat> in her spare time, liked to paint. So she started bringing in some little bits of white paint. And when she made a mistake, she would like furtively, you see where this is heading. Yeah, Betty Nesmith Graham is the secretary who invented, invented, liquid paper. That wondrous little bottle of white paint that would correct mistakes. Um, she, she figured it out. I mean, she, she, a blender in her kitchen and all kinds of books. She figured it out. She worked and worked and worked to get it quick drying. Um, and she eventually had what she knew was a pretty damn good product. So while being a secretary, she got her son and his friends to work in the garage pouring this stuff she was brewing up in her blender in the kitchen into little... Um, nail polish bottles and then putting on stickers and then she would sell them however she could to other secretaries. Incredible. Well, she ended up uh, with a company that was global and she ended up selling it to Gillette for $48 million in um, 1979, shortly before she died, way too young. And she left that fortune to her son. Her son, by the way, you might know. <laughs> His name was Michael Nesmith. Did that ring any bells? He was a member of the rock band, The Monkees, Michael Nesmith. So his mom, struggling single mom, figured this out, worked it out all by herself, liquid 
paper. Incredible. I think I knew that, but I don't think I knew quite all the detail. I think I'd read somewhere that Michael Nesmith's mother was the was the creator of and held the patent for uh, for liquid paper. <coughs> um, I came upon an article that I was reading at some god-awful hour this morning, like 3 a.m., because my sleep difficulties are continuing. And maybe that's why my voice sounds like this. I don't know. Um, and it was fascinating. And I want so much to share it with you. It was so long. I had no idea how long it was. I kept thinking, my God, I mean, I'm reading. It's three, it's four, it's five. It was like forever. It is so worth reading. I'm going to post a link to it on my Facebook page. It is by Ezra Klein. And I have never seen a better written article of why this country right now is in the state it is in. Um, what is fracturing America? And you know what it is? It's race. It's not economic anxiety. It is race. And he so nails it. Nails it. You can see, he says, all you got to do. Why are whites so freaked out? What, that Trump space, Trump space, white people. There's nobody else there, white people. And in fact, the Republicans have owned the white people vote for uh, a whole long cycle, I think. I, can't, I don't know how far to go back. So you've got Republicans and Democrats at, at each other's throats and clearly a racial division. But this being America, we always look for other ways to explain it. Can't just be race. Um, it is. It so clearly is. America is changing fast, and it's changing demographically fast, and it has freaked out all kinds of white folks, even ones you don't think it freaked out, or even white people who don't think they're freaked out are freaked out. A lot of studies that are put forward in this, in this article. Which, which shows it. The first year that the majority of babies born in this country, actually I'll change that, the, major, the majority of infants under the age of one, the first year that they were not white, was 2013. 
In 2013, the majority of one-year-olds and under were not, not white. Okay? And it has been thus ever since and will be thus ever since. Now, you'll recall that, that I guess that was probably a pretty big news story. I don't know. But who was the president when that came out? That'd be Barack Obama. So a lot of Americans saying, geez, demographers were saying, by the way, this is a tipping point. They've been predicting it for years and years and years, and bang oh, here it came. And it not only came, but there was a black guy in the white, in the white house. Also, how does America grow? Demographers now say that in uh, about 15 years, it won't be new births that are the dominant driver of population growth. It will be immigration, no matter what the Republicans try to do. And the reason is, is that America's black and Hispanic and Asian and mixed race populations are expected to continue to grow. In fact, Hispanic and Asian population in America is expected to double uh, by, trying to get this, by 2030. The mixed race population is expected to triple And the white population, actually they always say the non-Hispanic white population, which he gets to later, is expected to, while all these others are growing, is expected to fall. The Census Bureau says this. This is a quote from the Census, U.S. Census Bureau. Quote, the only group projected to shrink is the non-Hispanic white population. But that's really pretty much already here. You, what is, you know what the average age of white Americans is? If you were to take all white Americans and then do the math, the average age, listen to this, of white Americans is 58 The average age of Asian Americans is 29. African Americans, 27. Hispanics, the average age is 11. There, you don't have to have taken any demographic course to see that whites with an average age of 58 
and all these others with 29, 27, and 11 that we are white people, that is, going down. And in fact, white births are outnumbered by white deaths. In Pennsylvania, God knows, more white people die than are born. But not just Pennsylvania, in a majority of all states in the country, white deaths. Trump, white birth. So you wonder why build the wall and demonization of brown and black people and immigrants was a winning proposition in the last presidential election? Because white folks not only see the change, but they're undone by it. Also, it's not just race. The women, you uppity women, are just freaking a lot of people out. Women now make up 56% of all college students. They are much more likely than men to have earned bachelor's degrees. So white men are seeing what had been, I mean, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, their place. Superseded. Overwhelmed. And so make no mistake about it. Change on the magnitude that I've been suggesting acts on us individually acts on us as a people, acts on us not just politically and electorally, but acts on us psychologically. The rise of reactionary new social movements, the wars over political correctness, uh, the power of Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter, the fights over immigration, all of this are a direct result of this demographic tsunami and the fears and the hope that it evokes. But this article goes into psychological studies that just uh, show fascinating things. If you ask, if get gather together a whole bunch of independents, relatively neutral people, and then give them a survey, and the survey though you you. Get, one part of the group knows some of this demographic information and the other doesn't. By the way, these independents are all white. White in independent voters. 
the littlest bit of information that the people in this study got, that whites were losing their numerical majority in America, showed that as soon as they had that in their heads, these independent voters started leaning right. Part of a group that read any kind of information about racial minorities constituting a majority of the population in the near future immediately expressed more conservative views and more affinity to the Republican Party. So, even, according to this article, even seemingly inconsequential, gentle, unconscious exposure to reminders that America is changing in ways that is going to make all those Norman Rockwell pictures look really weird, and particularly the idea that America is becoming a brown country, White people show that they will move to the right and support Republicans. So Trump just happened to come along and um, at the right time, he, he, he being all id, I guess, he got it. He saw it. So from the moment he came down that damn escalator in Trump Tower and started talking about these rapists and murderers coming in from Mexico when in fact they were just fine human beings desperately seeking a better life for their children, willing to work, willing to in fact endure extraordinary hardship. But he's telling all the scared white folks out there, these are rapists, these are murderers, they're killing us. So, white voters, I mean, I'm just going to read from part of this right now. I find this fascinating. White voters who feel they are losing a hold on power, are reacting to something that is real. For the bulk of American history, you could not win the presidency of this country without winning a majority of the white vote. Bill Clinton, didn't, Bill Clinton did not win a majority of the white vote. Barack Obama did not win a majority of the white vote. So for some time now, the white vote is owned by Republicans. So Trump simply met the Republican Party where it was already. 
And, um, you know, if you're a member of a minority, you identify with a minority. I've often said that as, as a Jew, for instance, you know, when, let's say, a Jew is in the news for doing something not good, Jews cringe. I got to tell you, we cringe. It is not unusual for something to happen, some horrible story, and for Jews to call each other and say, God, is he a Jew? Terrified that he's a Jew. Why? Because when you're in a minority group, you understand that the actions of a single individual can really impact the entire group. And I always said to white Christian folks, you guys don't have a clue of what it is to be black or a Jew or any minority, any minority. Because you don't know that feeling of cringing. You don't, you know, okay, Jeffrey Dahmer was white. Did you all, oh my God, he's white. Everyone will, you know, you don't think that. So whites don't have a history of identifying, you know, as white, a white group. They don't feel it. They don't say they have no reason to. They're in power. But see, now they are fearful of losing that power. And so you have much more white identity politics going on because they now feel like they could become a minority. And the right wing and the Republicans and their their, you know, right wing sound machine on radio and television have been amplifying this fear, making white folks fearful for a long time. Here's a quote. 2009, Rush Limbaugh, right after a black guy became president. Here was what, what Rush Limbaugh said to his listeners, among a million other things. How do you get promoted in a Barack Obama administration? <laughs> By hating white people. Or even saying you do or that they're not good or whatever. You make white people the new oppressed minority. And they're going along with it because they're shutting up. They're moving to the back of the bus. They're saying, I can't use that drinking fountain, okay? I can't use that restroom, okay? That's the modern-day Republican Party, the equivalent of the Old South, the new oppressed minority. And all these white folks that voted for Donald Trump, they were lapping this up for eight years. Primed to vote for Donald Trump. An openly racist candidate. Bill O'Reilly, 2012, on the eve of Barack Obama's second election victory. The demographics are changing, folks. It's not a traditional America anymore. 
And there are 50% of the voting public who want stuff. They want things. And who's going to give it to them? President Obama. Who's he talking about? He knows it, and he ran on it. And whereby 20 years ago, President Obama would have been roundly defeated by Mitt Romney. The white establishment is now the minority. And in fact, a poll taken just two years ago found that 50% of white folks agree with the statement that discrimination against whites is as big a problem today as discrimination against blacks and other minorities. 57% of white Americans think they are every bit as <laughs> discriminated against as blacks. They have bought it hook, line, and sinker. They are aggrieved. And they're so not used to being aggrieved that quite frankly, they don't know how to do it with any class whatsoever. They're just freaked. And here's something that should chill you. Another survey taken just last year of millennials, white millennials, those are young folks, found 48% of white Millennials agreed with the similar statement. You can think of politics as a market and powerful primal fears like these are being whipped up and uh, eventually someone was going to come along and give the people what they wanted and Trump. So anyway, this is just, I mean, this article is hardly even beginning. I mean, I'm, it, it, but it is fascinating. I'll post it on my Facebook page. It is by Ezra Klein, and uh, it is called White Threat in a Browning America by Ezra Klein, and it is uh, published at Vox, V-O-X dot com. Chris writes, Lynn, as Paul Harvey would say, and now the rest of the story. This is in regard to the whiteout and Michael Nesmith. <laughs> Michael Nesmith is coming to Pittsburgh for Comic-Con August 10th through 12th. Oh, for heaven's sakes. I knew that story about his mother inventing whiteout. I so enjoyed your telling of how in the old days of typing with carbon paper, when I first started working at my job, I too used carbon paper and got just as frustrated when I would make a mistake. Do you remember the eraser with the brush on the other end that you would use to try and erase your mistake? Oh, man, it, it was torture. Absolute torture. Chris writes, keep up the good job of not speaking about you-know-who. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing okay. And you know what? I don't feel like I'm, I, I, I so want uh, the mainstream media 
to figure out that this is what you have to do. Ignore the son of a bitch. Don't totally ignore him. I'm watching. I'm oh don't don't worry. I am watching. I'm reading. I'm seeing it. But simply making ourselves nuts about it is and I won't I don't want to give him the pleasure. Really don't. God, this is awful long, Roger. Am I supposed to read this to people? Roger usually writes a pretty good thing. Okay, I will. I haven't read it. If this doesn't... Roger, if this doesn't turn out to be entertaining and or edifying, then ending the show on a down note is going to be on you, buddy. Okay, here we go. Lynn writes, Roger. I have had the pleasure of running with a couple of groups that meets Tuesdays and Thursdays at various bars and restaurants. It's been a great break from Trump world, as most of us are like-minded when it comes to caring about people, health care, the environment, etc. We rarely discuss current events, except when it comes to the Pittsburgh Pirates and their wonderful winning ways of late. After our run, we always finish up at the bar to consume calories uh, to offset all the ones we ran off. Oh, you run, and then you go to a... Then, just before I left Thursday night, I talked with Ed. Ed is a white guy like me, and we both like the Pirates. I was commenting on how the stadium's hospitality is great when it comes to taking care of my mom when she arrives in town for a ball game in a wheelchair waiting for her on Ma- with a wheelchair waiting for her on Mazeroski Way. I tell him when it comes to Pittsburgh, the people in general are wonderful. Ed agrees and says, that's just the way Midwest people are. And that's where I disagreed with him, as I have noticed that the further I get away from town, people seem to get a little more guarded. My friends of a darker complexion and couples of the same sex notice a difference just a few miles into suburbia. One thing led to another, and the next thing I know, Ed's telling me that he's an evangelical Christian who voted for Trump and had no idea what I could be talking about when I said that if our children talked about people like our president, we'd turn them over our knee and spank their behinds. Next thing I found out is the actually media, the actual media is the enemy of the state and says Trump tweets and rallies are necessary, oh, Ed's telling him this, are necessary to set the record straight as the media twist everything he says and does. Then Ed told me he goes to Trump rallies every chance he gets. With that, I said goodnight and couldn't get away from him fast enough. People like Ed are not fixable. What a waste of my time. Okay, blah, blah, blah. How did German nationalists feel after World War II? What do guys like Ed do when Trump goes down in his bunker with Melania? I pray to the goddesses that the son of a bitch goes down. Ah, Roger. We're trying not to overwhelm ourselves with these folks. They're there. And they're quite willing to believe what they got to believe because they're scared shitless. Boy, there's a lot of cowards in the world. Oh, people are sending me ways to get sleep. I know all this. Sleep in the raw. Yeah. Bamboo sheets, magnesium, I don't know, 
While there are countless strategies floating around to help you improve your sleep, none is as simple and many are less effective as stripping down before you go to sleep. Since only 8% of people sleep naked, most everyone can discover the benefits of sleeping in the buff. This may sound far-fetched, but hear me out. Um, well, yeah, I do. I, I do sleep naked. Or I should say I don't sleep <laughs> naked. <laughs> I'm I'm a I'm a rough case, believe me. I I I am. And uh Barbara also says, "I too was a legal secretary right after college starting in 1971." Well, hey. I too could type. Lots of practice typing on those portables and I still have my portable. I remember it all, carbon paper white out, eraser with a brush on the end, the IBM Selectric. Oh yeah. Those were the days, huh? Okay, you guys, that's it. I'm done. I'm finished. I'm out. Tomorrow, Susan will join us on her birthday. So uh, get ready. I'll probably start the show singing happy birthday, and you might want to turn in just a minute late if you can't bear the sound of that. Okay? Have a good one. See ya. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.